Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Strongcast. I'm your host, Armstrong Williams. You know, uh, some time ago, not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, I lost my mother. I was so blessed that she lived to the ripe old age of 92 years old. And we grew up in a culture where it was never someone else's responsibility to care for your aging parents. It was a duty that was expected of the sons and of the daughters. And I must tell you, um, my mother's health was almost perfect until the ages of probably 80 to 92, almost 12 years. And I never really thought about it. And I never thought about it as being a, a, any kind of work, any kind of burden. But my brothers and sisters and I, we were up for the task and we enjoyed every moment of it. And I was in Europe recently and I was talking to someone who had read a story about my writing about my mother and caring for my mother. And I did the same for my father who died in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University. I took off three months of work when he was diagnosed with myeloma cancer. I literally just took off. And I, I was much younger in my life. I was in my 20s versus in my 50s when I cared for my mother. But when I was in Europe, I was watching this documentary about just what people go through when they're caregivers, um, caring for people who are over 80 years old, many of them who have dementia, Alzheimer's, osteosporosis, um, some of them who suffer with cancer, all manner of diseases and ailments. You know, for, for, for me, I took it for granted that it was an easy process and it's a joy. I wish my mother was still here, but in other cultures, it's not necessarily the same. When parents are aging, unless you have the resources, unless you have the heart and the compassion for it, it can not only be a nightmare for them, but it can also be a nightmare for those that are aging. And so we wanted to invite um, two very distinguished people on today to talk about this subject, because I think it's a subject that was worthwhile. It just really tore at me when I watched this story. I, I just cannot imagine my mother suffering any kind of slight or the feeling that she was a burden to us because we had to take care of her. That feeling alone became a sunken feeling to me. And so when I returned from overseas, I immediately said to the production crew, we just got to do a show on caregivers. And I'm so happy that Nina Kissinger, who's the owner and director of Home Watch Caregivers, is joining us. And also Joe Corrucci, who's a caregiver with the Home Health Services. I want to welcome you both. You know, I was telling a story about caring for my mother. It was never a bad day. Never a disappointing moment because it was a sense of duty, but I loved taking care of her. And I even remember um, at, in the hospital when I was there for a week when she was in the hospital, she did not want nurses to clean her when she had a bowel movement. Now, I would never thought that I would have to clean my mother, but I thought about it for a second because these are realities of what yeah. people have to deal with. I thought about it for a second. I said, well, my mother's the one that's sick. I mean, it's no big deal. I'm just going to have to do it. And she said, boy, it'll be all right. I said, mom, don't worry about it. I'm going to wash him, a baby, I'm going to clean him, I'm going to wash whatever I need to do. And that's what I did. But it was never any hesitation. But I realized that's not everybody's story. No, unfortunately it isn't. Talk, talk about caregivers. Well, when I look for a caregiver, the qualities I want, I want them to be compassionate, honest, reliable, um, someone that I would want to care for my loved one if my parents were still alive. Um, it's very... Caregiving, I think you can get a lot out of caregiving, just as your experience was. Because you're there to help that person live 
as long as they can, hopefully as actively as they can. We don't want to go in and start doing everything for them. We want them to be able to do as much as they can and stand by and help them as needed. Because elders suffer from three things, loneliness, boredom, and helplessness. So you want them to feel like they have a life worth living, even though they're sick or they have dementia. You want to engage them, take them places, socialize with them. It's just not all assisting with daily living, which is bathing and grooming, as you experience, feeding, mobility. It's also just being there for them, being a companion, being a friend, taking them, um, interacting with them such that if they're just not sitting or you're just not, you're just not babysitting, you're there to actively help them to grow, continue to grow. You know, I think sometimes we look at the elderly and we think, oh my goodness, they're feeble. They have so many stories to tell. They've lived such incredible lives. And we need to bring that out. And what we do when we go into a home, and I do most of the assessments because I want to learn who are my prospective clients are that may become clients. I do a social history. I learn what do they do for a living. What did they, uh, what were their hobbies? Where were their children? Where did they visit? Because I'm all trying to gather feedback so that when the caregiver goes out there, she knows a little bit more. So with a dementia client, she can bring it out. She can ask, oh, I heard you were a school teacher. What grade did you teach? You know, bring so that they're talking and interacting with the person. It's, it's very important. I mean, yes, you're there to care for them. You're there for their safety. But you're also there just to make a difference in their lives and make them feel like, hey, I want to wake up tomorrow. I want to be here. I have a reason to be here. I'm important. Wow. Um, so, so, Joe, is there anything in life, continued education, that prepare you as a caregiver? Because, listen, I learned early on in my family with my eight brothers and two sisters, there are some things that they're just not good at. And that doesn't mean they love the parent any less, and it doesn't mean you love them anymore. There's some things they never really thought they could do until they tried, and they realized they just can't. Sometimes they, some, you have a sibling that just cannot be around their parent in a sick and a feeble condition. They just cannot. It's hard. They, they just cannot do it. And listen, that's a learning curve. What I'm trying to do now is point out where the conflict may come in where you have expectations of some of the other sibling because what you see yourself as doing. I never, I learned, I never compare my capabilities with that of my brothers or my sister. You do what you can, when you can, where you can, while you can. Right. Um, and and it just shocks me. And even, even uh, in a situation of having to feed them and having to change the beds, uh, taking them places, some people just don't have the patience for it. They just... Don't have the patience. And the quicker you recognize that, Joe, the better. Right. Right, definitely. Um, I mean, a lot of obstacles come into play. And that's when caregivers, you know, home health services is able to provide, like, aids um, to provide the care that they need. You know, not every, every, you know, daughter or son can be there 
they may have the time or the resources to do so, but um, in other instances, it's just they can't handle it. They're used to looking at their family member as the leader of the home, someone that's able to, who's always been strong, always, you know, able to provide wisdom and, you know, provide you with anything that you need, and then you're the one now having to provide that for them. So it's a big change for, you know, uh, a son or a daughter to be able to do that and have the right mindset. You know, you, you may go into it, and there's a lot of times patients go from the hospital, don't want to go to a nursing facility, and they just want to go home, and uh, they don't understand the whole consequences of that, about what's really required. Um, having to change, you know, your parent, having to provide care, even though you have kids and you have responsibility at work, things like that, they just don't understand. They, they're well, you know, they want to do the right thing and, and do it all on their own, but it gets overwhelming. It gets very overwhelming. So man, why is it, though, that sickness and aging parents really bring to the forefront all the issues that would never address, all the lack of communication, it really come to surface where the adult person really come to terms of just how they really feel about the parent. And then sometimes, this is what shocks me, that some of them are just mean to their parents. I mean, it's, just, it's reality. Right. I mean, I believe the Lord would strike me dead. <laughs> I wouldn't even think of, I mean, listen, when my mother and father, and I, I've dealt with this firsthand, of all the things I tell you I've ever done in my life, and I love talking about this because I talk about it not in an emotional way, but it's very uplifting for me because that which gives me my, my self-esteem, my self-worth, that makes me feel good no matter what's going on is how I was there for my mother and father when they needed me. It is a feeling that nobody can take away from me because when my parents, and sometimes they have attitudes because they are <laughs> upset. They don't like the condition they're in. They're going to snap at you. They may say cruel things to you, but you know what I would say? You're always my parent. It's okay. I'd probably do the same thing if I were in your shoes. I would never, ever take any of their slings and sling them back. I was always one, never talked back. I said, no, you have a right to do that. And eventually, they leave it alone and just move on to something else. But that is something, it's something, it comes from a place, love, duty. But when you see somebody that you love that suffer, how do people go from that transition of where they can treat their parents like total strangers? How does it happen? I think they're afraid. They're afraid of the disease. Maybe they're afraid that they're going to be like that in, in oh. situations of dementia. It's just, they're thinking, my mom's always been strong, and now I, she isn't. And with dementia, a lot of times there's a lot of denial on the, well, for one thing, there's a lot of denial on the person having the dementia. But then on family members, I went to a client once, and her mother said, her daughter said, I don't, my mom doesn't have dementia. And I could tell that she probably did, but I wasn't going to question it. I just left a booklet that basically said living with dementia. Well, you know, she called me up a week later and she said, I read your book. My mom has dementia. So sometimes it's education mm. that you have to do. You have to educate them. Um, some people don't want, they just don't want to deal with it and they stay away. I, I was like you. I was with my mom and my dad when they both died of, of cancers about eight years apart. And my brother wouldn't come to the room till the very, very end where my father was concerned. And um, I had a hard time with that because I, to me it was easy. 
Yes. It was yeah, easy yeah, to yeah, be yeah, there. Yeah. I wanted to be right. there. Um, you didn't have to pizza anywhere else? No. That's the no. no I, stayed, I stayed on a couch next to her bed for three weeks. Um, and my family, she was in Seattle, so I was a long ways. I had young children, but that's where I wanted to be. Right. And there's so much energy in the room when someone is, is dying. It's just, it's incredible. And just being there for her. And when she was um, in the dying process for about a week, and about, which just means that it looks like they're unconscious, but they aren't. And you have to be very careful what you say, because they can hear everything you say. And um, I was careful with what I said. I I'd invited all her friends over. I painted her nails, toenails, um, put lipstick on her, you know, because so, I knew she wanted to look well when people visited. So that's the kind of the things I did. And she woke up. It's called the swan song. Uh, so often, right before they die, they'll, they'll wake up. She smiled at me with the most loving smile I've ever seen from my mom because she knew I'd been there, that I'd been there with her all the time. And she, uh, I, I got some more of her friends over and they talked to her. She couldn't talk very much at that point, but at least I brought in all her loved ones. Um, and then about two days later she passed because she went back into that position. But yeah, I mean, some people it's where you want to be and others you kind of just have to coax them in very gently and be supportive of them because it's hard. It's hard losing a loved one. And some people take it like you and I and Joe. We know we know what it's like. We've been there and and we're willing to go through it. And you just have to help. And and don't, you know, like you said, everybody has things they bring into the room. And some people it's easy for and some it isn't. So you just have to try and, and not condemn it or say, you know, you should be more supportive to mom. It's just, you just have to kind of gently help them to, because otherwise they'll regret it later if they didn't come and visit or see. I finally got my brother to come before my mom passed. So at least he, he was with her for a few months. Joe, how did you get into this field and why? Uh, well, my mother opened up a home care agency in 1997. She was in the registered nurse in the army and uh, she had the diverticulitis and had to be honorably discharged. So she tried to figure out what her next step would be and uh, she worked with my, her, her brother in California and her, his home care agency, became the director of nursing and learned how to do that and opened up her company uh, here in uh, Northern Virginia. So um, I've been with the company about 10, uh, ten years now, uh, working the intake and staffing and then now as the operations manager and helping out with the marketing. So. Um, with me, I've seen from the beginning process and when you're talking to clients on the phone all the way to, you know, my own personal experience dealing with my uh, mother-in-law who passed away about two years ago from uh, pancreatic cancer. So you see, you know, both sides of it. You see, understand um, the people that are there for their parents and can do everything for them and have the will to do that and uh, the resources and you see the other people who just can't handle it, you know. It's very hard to uh, be put in that position and to expect everyone to be the same way is very difficult. Um, again, you're dealing with people who you look up to your whole life, you know, your father, your mother, just look at these guys, nothing ever will go wrong, great health, you know, and then one day that all changes. So it takes a lot to grasp. 
Um, and when we were able to, you know, provide aids and stuff like that, the caregivers to really come in and help that alleviate that support or it's kind of funny, the, the, the siblings end up trying to actually lower their hours a little bit here and there because they want to be involved too. You know, they see what, what's going on and when they have that extra care at home, it doesn't fully put that burden all the way on them. So, 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 so I mean, how, how do we prepare people to find themselves in the best situation when their parents do come to this process called aging, illness, setbacks and to the point where even I'm sure your parents like mine realize you know I can't do this anymore I need help mm -hmm. how do you better prepare people for that track well you prepare the caregivers to make sure that you're picking compassionate ones and that they're well trained um, do you suggest that they think about caregivers not just about themselves being in that role? Yes, mm -hmm. that they're a caregiver. They're the first caregiver, mm -hmm. actually. I mean, they're the primary caregiver. And that they just, some of them do say, I don't know how to do this. And it's just like, be gentle, be kind, smile, and, uh, and try not to cry. You know, it's sometimes hard, but try, try to be strong for them because it's hard for them to see you sad. You know, you know, um, that's an interesting comment you just made because you know what? Oftentimes the caregiver dies before the parent. Oh yes, they get ill. Why they're is not that? taking care of themselves. They're, Talk about it. they're focusing all their energies. They're skipping doctor appointments. Not sleeping well, you know. Yeah, they're worried. <laughs> right. And as a result, I had an aunt and an uncle that were primary caregivers passed before my grandparents passed. I mean, they both had cancer, but also it wore them down. I mean, my aunt was spending, you know, several nights a week with my, at my grandmother's house. So they do need help. They need help. No, even the best of them. The best of them need help, yeah. You need breaks. Um, sometimes a caregiver can get the, the client, we call them clients, mm -hmm. to eat or to do things that the family members won't do. I'm not doing that. You're not telling me what to do, the mom or dad might say. But the caregiver, they can get them to do things that are better for their health than, than the family members. You know, I think it's, it's a little different between mothers and their sons. I never had an issue. Uh, my mother was more than willing to take, to make the recommendations. But, but you know, um, you've been in this field for how long? I've been in it for about nine years. What triggered it for you? We were a part of the sandwich generation. About 20 years ago, um, my mother broke her hip on the West Coast. Don's mom, my husband, were co-owners. Uh, his mother had cancer in Connecticut. Literally had to fly out to Seattle, take care of my mom once she got out of the uh, rehab. And then Don, when I came back, Don, we had small children. Don had to fly up and stay with his, his mother while his sister took a break because she had been the primary caregiver. And we, plus we had children, two children, one with a, men, um, a learning process disability and the other one with a physical disability. So we've had, wow. you know, we, we needed to use caregivers. And so when we retired, both from successful careers, my husband's a lawyer and I worked for the Defense Department as a, an executive audit um, for many years that I retired from, we wanted to give back. 
and I have always been around older people. My parents were older when they had me. We had a lot of older uh, grandparents. I had a grandmother that had dementia, and I would ride my bike over there every day and sit and talk to her, and she would repeat the same stories over and over. So that was my very introduction to um, dementia at the age of probably you know, 10. Um, but you just learned to listen. You, you have to almost listen like every time they tell you that story, it's a, it's a new story. Because you don't want to let them on or, or say, oh, come on, you, you know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you know, it's, it's, it's You don't tell reality. them that, right? No, that's, <laughs> that's right. You don't tell them that. You don't tell them, you don't tell you them don't. that. They're that's always right. <laughs> no, they do. What? You know what? With a dementia client, sometimes the mom will say, when's my mom coming to visit? Or when's, my, when's Don or husband coming over? The worst thing a person can say is, oh, come on, they're dead. Right. You know that they, they, they'll go through the grieving process right. all over again. All over again. again. Yes. All over again. It's, it's, so it's, it, it's, my husband terms it, it's therapeutic lying. Because it, it's just, you don't want to put them through that. You no, know, it's, just, it's just reinforcing their fantasy. Yeah. They have a right to fantasize of what once was. Because you know when people are dying, especially the agent, they go back in time. They yes. can so easily remember the past. It's what is happening today. Sometimes <laughs> they don't recognize us, but they remember everything else. And it's not lying. You're just you're just giving them the, the peace and the reassurance that look looking for. What have you what has surprised you most about this industry? Joe? I, I would say the the amount of people that uh, you know want to provide care for their families you know I mean you you get a lot of calls I'm sure you get it too where a lot of people are been taking care of their family member for years and it's like they're overwhelmed like they just need a break and you would think that they once they get that service and they have that you know they're gonna just let that service keep going and then they can get back to their lives and do you know um, not be so much involved in the everyday aspects of it but they they don't. It's only for a limited period of time, and they go right back into it. So, I mean, that's that's amazing to me with talking to these families and understanding that they have small kids to raise, and they're working on, on, as well as that, taking out second mortgages just so, so they can be there for their parents. That's, you know. Really? You don't see that. You don't wouldn't think that, but wow. it happens a lot. You know, that everybody, the sacrifice that people give up um, to be there for their family member. That's amazing to me, like when you talk to them and you really build a rapport with the client and, and the families, like it's just, it's, it's really great to see that. Nina, what, what, is, um, what needs to change in the industry? What can be better? How can the adult children, the, 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 the convalescent homes and the different places we put them, how can it all improve? Probably by making sure that everyone is more well, well trained well. Um, sometimes even in your rehabs and nursing homes, you don't always, this is an industry that has every day, a, what, 10,000 people are turning 65. By 21, it's going to be a $15 billion a year industry, and it's supposed to be 50% increase by 2026. So. You know, one of the things that we struggle with every day is getting good caregivers. Right. Um, so there needs to be a, lots of training. And in the facilities, they, they suffer from the same thing that we do. It, and there needs to be more people encouraged 
to become caregivers? I need to ask you a difficult question because I, I thought about this. And this is a fact. I'm not speaking about nothing but facts, okay? Were it not for the medicine, there was lots of it. My mother probably would have died 10 years earlier. Just, just no question about it. Uh, I never would have thought that the advancement in medicine today can be so addictive, but not just so addictive, that it can really extend life. So it's not as if it's anything natural that's going on with your heart and your body and what God has given you that is extending the life. It is really the medicine. And I'm coming back full circle to what brought us to this conversation in this show that I was watching in Europe. They were making the argument that extending these lives for 90 to 100 for the person who has to live it is not always in their best interest. Right. So I want to, and listen, I've seen it. I, I, I've seen I saw my mother deteriorate from the medicine, but it kept her alive. All I cared about was that she was alive. I remember when they had to put the, uh, in a heart, what do you call it, the little... Um, port. The, the port, in a heart, to regulate her medicine. I remember when that had to happen. And how we debated, they said she probably could have a heart attack. A lot of people didn't necessarily survive it, but we played for broke because we get caught up in the thing called faith, and we are faithful people. But I do understand, and the question is, does medicine play too big a role? Because what medicine does, it creates other complications that were not there years later. So I, this is what I'm agonizing with. The report that I saw in, in um, Florence, Italy, whether or not they, we should reconsider medicating um, that generation. There is a lot of medications that go on. Um, Especially, we see it when people move in from Florida. Their their medication lists are are sometimes unbelievably long. What we have seen and what our franchise system has always recommended is that you get a neurologist, and several of our clients have done this, and then they look at all the medicines and they decide which ones interact with each other and which ones are necessary and which ones aren't. So the first step is to try to cut down the list because maybe you have medication, two medications that are for the same thing. I mean, that, that happens because the person can have five or six doctors and they're all prescribing different medications. So the best thing is to do is to have a primary doctor, like a neurologist, who can look at all the medications and say, okay, this one, this one, and this one is necessary. These are duplication. So the first thing you want to do is to probably to cut down on the number by having a because it, it is a business for the pharmaceutical company to get them addicted to these medicines. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of the pacemaker, by the way. But go the ahead. pacemaker, yeah. correct. Right. Yeah, and so, um, so please continue. So, um, and then, you know, when they go, when, when it's determined that they don't have a long, maybe like less than six months to live, that's when we would bring, both of us would bring hospice, which are separate companies, in. And then they again look at the medications and decide you know what's necessary what isn't and but you don't do it overnight but for some family members it's, the mention of hospice yes and oh, putting your yes. loved one in hospice that's like it's like you're done i mean for me and listen like i'm sophisticated educated well-versed there is no way I, it would be too emotionally traumatized and the pharmaceutical companies and everybody else knows it yeah. it's become such an emotional that's why they said 
most of the health care costs are spent on the last six months of someone's life. Yeah. I understand it. Yeah. So not much is going to change. <laughs> I think it does. With, it does with hospice. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they cut back on the medications. Um, Joe? I mean, well, I mean, for us, like with my mother-in-law, we did everything possible not to use hospice in the beginning. Once we found out she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, we wanted to provide care. It was a family decision, my wife and her father, to let's just provide the care as long as we can with our resources, with you know IV infusion companies and you know our nurses and things like that. We were able to provide the care there. You brought up a point earlier about how they don't want to be a burden to the family. Well, you know, my mother-in-law decided to go back to the Philippines after she was diagnosed uh, with pancreatic cancer, and you know we didn't want her to go. She decided that. Again, didn't want to be a burden, so she went and, uh, went there, and we ended up convincing her to come back, but she was at a very weakened state to be able to get her back. I mean, we was begging the airline to allow us to put her on the plane from the Philippines and travel back to the States. So it was very difficult. Um, I mean, we, once we got hospice involved, when we knew uh, we couldn't keep up with her um, medications that she needed for her pain medication, we had to get hospice involved because no pharmacy was going to give us the type of um, morphine and things like that that was needed. So we had no choice. That following day is when she passed away. Oh wow! So the life of hospice you can come. Went, the statistics show that they're only in there three or four days, and they really need to be in there longer because they can make the people person more comfortable when they're going through the process. Mm -hmm. They can, um, you know, regulate the medications. But, but yeah, it, hospice isn't normally, it should be. I think they should be able to come in sooner because they do help. Um, because they have a nurse and they can regulate the drugs. Um, but people are very, I, we need to educate yeah. them on what hospice can do. How do we get more information about your um, Home Watch Caregivers? Well, we have a site, um, homewatchcaregivers.com backslash Fairfax. Um, if you just do Home Watch caregivers.com, that'll get you to our franchise system, and then you can put the zip code in where your loved one lives, and then the company will come up. Because our uh, franchise system has 198 locations throughout the United States. Congratulations. So, um, that, is, that is a tribute to you. Um, Joe Kortucci? Yes. And how do they, can they reach you? Uh, through the website, uh, www.caregivershhs.com. Um, has all our information. We do skilled care as well as providing care, uh, caregivers at home as well. I can't thank you both enough. This conversation is going to continue on a live uh, national television show, which will be aired all across the country. Look for it in markets where you are. I'm Armstrong Williams. It's a strong cast. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Joe. Have a good day and take care of your loved ones. But more importantly, prepare yourselves to take care of your loved ones. Good day, everyone. <laughs>